You're listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCurry, your host, and today I'm being joined by Brandon Hiltabottle. He's the Director of Adult Ministry here at LifeWay. Brandon, thank you for joining us today as we look at Session 10. You are a good person to talk to, regardless of what we're talking about, but I'm especially <laughs> happy to be here to talk about this text today. Uh, we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through chapter 5, verse 7, so it's the end of chapter 4, the verse of, first part of chapter 5. The main theme in these verses are about uh, the ignoring of warnings. The summary statement that we have for this session is that the wise person heeds the warnings gained from past mistakes and godly counselors. Main thoughts are that we should be listening when leading, when worshiping, and when promising. And those are the three outline points that we have for this study, when leading, when worshiping, and when promising. That first section, when leading, looks at verses 13 through 16 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. In those verses, Solomon reminded leaders of the value of continually listening to wise counsel. He pointed to the cycle that he had seen in leadership. A king ascends to the throne, he loses touch with his kingdom, change is demanded, and then he's discarded in preference for a new leader who then does the same thing. So he's seen the cycle being repeated over and over and over, which is kind of interesting because he's the king sitting in that chair uh, who will one day have that same, that same happen to him. Uh, the main point here for us is that we as leaders, Christian leaders, must be willing to listen to wise counsel when leading. That third idea about listening was about when worshiping, and that looks at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. In these verses, Solomon challenged worshipers to approach God with a heart of obedience, rather than just going through meaningless rituals. He encourages worshipers to listen more than they speak when in the presence of God. In this passage, these, these three verses, we're encouraged to worship God with reverent obedience. And we're going to talk some more about that, about rituals versus obedience, how that works. The last verses, verses 4 through 7, deal with the idea of listening when promising. In these passages, Solomon sought to motivate God's people to fulfill vows they make to God without delay. He explained that refraining from making a vow was better than making a vow and not keeping it. The keeping of a vow demonstrates fear of God. The main point in this section is that wise believers carefully weigh the promises they make to God and others, knowing they'll be expected to keep any promises made. So those three things, once again, are listening when we're leading, listening when we're worshiping, and listening when promising. So let's think about these, these uh, three things here, Brandon. First of all, the danger of failing to listen to wise counsel. I would think Solomon would fully understand that as king, having seen his dad, David, uh, rule and listen to counselors and now him in that same position. Uh, what are some of the dangers of us failing to listen to wise counsel when we're in a leadership role? Yeah, so let's start with a couple of simple, practical things first. And I just wrote down a couple of these, and, and maybe you have some to add. You and I both lead teams. But no leader can see everything or understand everything. 
no, unless, unless that leader is the Lord, no leader is omniscient, omnipresent. That means we need others to help us understand the various aspects of the team that we're leading, the various aspects of its mission. We need people to help us understand how others are seeing the goal or whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish together. We need people to uh, give us a sense of how a team is progressing. So a single leader can't possibly see all of the challenges or the opportunities related to a team. So in that sense, listening to wise counsel is a prerequisite of effective leadership. That's just a super practical reality. Another one is that uh, no team will continue following the leader if he consistently fails to listen to, to wise counsel. The example of the leader in the text is a king. Eventually a king is gonna get overthrown if they only ignore wise counsel. What if, the, if, what if the example is a discipleship group leader? A, a discipleship group leader that never listens will eventually have an empty discipleship group with no people. Um, so, you know, the text says, better is the poor but wise youth who pays attention to warnings because he will actually be able to uh, continue to lead and to lead well. Um, so those are two practical things. But I also wanted to point out a note from the commentary. And this, this may be the most important thing on this question. One of the dangers of, falling, uh, of failing to listen to wise counsel is that it is likely that that leader also isn't listening to the Lord. Like there would be a correlation between God, tell, God tells you to listen to wise counsel. If you're refusing to listen to wise counsel, are you, not, are you not also likely failing to listen to the Lord? Let me read this from the leader commentary. It says the wisest counsel comes from the one who is greater than Solomon, namely Jesus Christ. To those who seek to build their own empires of dirt, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So in a world where people despair in fear over living, dying, and being forgotten, Jesus comes to us with a promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. So maybe the most critical danger of failing to listen to wise counsel is that it likely coincides with a failure to listen to the most wise counsel, Jesus. The irony in this passage is that Rehoboam would have been sitting there listening and he's going to ignore the counsel of the wise men who were with Solomon, which mm -hmm. also infers he, he also ignored the counsel of God in that yeah. context, which yeah. we see that in what happens in the, after the life of Solomon and when, when Rehoboam is king. Uh, second section here is this idea about when worshiping. He talks about we should listen more than we speak. We should, you know, we're not doing these meaningless rituals. Before I jump into there, uh, that idea, this idea of listening before we speak, that listening carries the idea of obedience. So uh, yeah. a question I have here for us to think about is how can we make sure that our religious practices don't become rituals? And I am making a distinction there between a practice and a ritual. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to have favorite questions, but this was my favorite question. <laughs> um, I thought it would be helpful to to answer that question with the help of a question. So here's, I think, a helpful question for church leaders or church members, followers of Jesus to answer often that also relates to this, this topic. And the question is, who am I here for? Um, this is a diagnostic question that I think the text touches on, but that can help us avoid having our religious practices or our church going or our spiritual efforts become empty rituals. Who am I here for? Who is this really about? Um, so think about this for a minute. Um, churches know this is an important question, but still often 
only get part of the answer. And here's what I mean by that. Some people say that the church is for non-Christians. We've heard that. The church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. I don't remember whose quote that is. It's not mine. Um, we have a great commission to reach lost people. That's absolutely true. Um, but that's not all. Some people focus on the fact that the church is for Christians. It's the family of God uh, that he has called us into. He's asked us to grow as disciples within that body. Also true. However, focusing on ourselves as members or disciples and focusing on lost people outside the church, if either of those things becomes the primary source of our attention, it moves us away from joy in Jesus and it moves us into religious practice. And the church uh, is, so the church is about Christians and it is about non-Christians. So the question really I'm driving at is who is it primarily about? Who is it ultimately about? And the answer should be staring us in the face. It is about God. That's the answer to the question, who are we for? Will we, and when we answer it that way, when we say, God, who, who we are for is you, we will be able to maintain the awe and the joy and the significance of worshiping the real thing rather than simply walking through religious practice. One more thing before I stop talking. Um, that's certainly where this text leads us, I, I think. Um, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. God. The Hebrew name there is Elohim, uh, which is telling us he's the ruler, he is the judge, he's the supreme God. So if there's a supreme ruler God, even if he didn't like us, I think he would be worthy of obedience. Even if he didn't give two anythings about our joy, by his very nature of being supreme, his ultimate status, he would deserve obedience. It is better to bring obedience than the sacrifice of fools. But as New Testament believers, of course, we don't even have to wonder how Elohim feels about, uh, feels about us. He's already come as a human. He's already died for our sin that needed to be judged. So, you know, it's a long-winded way of, of saying how in the world could remembering that and remembering him lead us to empty religious rituals. If we want to keep God, if we keep God uh, at the at the center of our attention, the practice of the church should be able to remain both alive and obedient uh, as, he, as he's asked them to be and as he deserves them to be. So that was my uh, sort of thought in response to that question is just remember that God is who we are here for. Let's, let's think about that question, just the who am I here, here for question. Um, and, and tie it to the idea of, of, of listening more than speaking. When we listen, we tend to be the person in the back, not in the front. If you're going to be speaking, you're in the front. You're not in the back. Mm -hmm. So it's about you if you're in front. You want to be seen and be seen by somebody, and that's why you're there. So that gets to that question, who am I here for? If we're speaking, there are times when we may be speaking to defend ourselves uh, so that others hear us or that so we are affirmed and we can feel good about who we are as opposed to us being there to simply demonstrate, uh, demonstrate probably not the right word, Brandon, um, to come humbly before God to grow in our understanding and relationship with him. Yeah, It's one thing for us to speak with the idea of I'm doing this to, be, to grow in my relationship with him. It's another thing for us to speak to defend ourselves, defend yeah. our perspectives, as opposed to listening and making sure we're always the one speaking. Uh, so there's a humility in one in this idea of us sitting 
which to me, humility gets at that question too about why am I? Yeah, that's here? good. Yeah. Or who am I here for? Yeah, that's if good. I'm here for myself or others, it's really about me. But if you know who God is, how could that be? How could you be here for yourself if you really see Him, if you really taste Him? So I think that's what we're driving. Yeah, at. yeah, and and part of it too is what happens after that worship time is over, because the goal here is obedience, not yeah. you being affirmed or sure whatever. So if there's no obedience on the other side, then you know the answer to the question of who am I here for? This last section, <laughs> when promising, uh, this this idea about vows. This is a real different kind of thing for us to think about in our world. Sure. Uh, what kind of vows was Solomon talking about here when he pointed to keeping a vow made? Uh, yeah, you already touched on it. The the This is not, at least in the circles that I've been a part of, this is not a common thing. The first word that, that came to my mind was rare. Um, but these are, these are vows that come from a, a, from a place of worship vows related to significant circumstances, I, I would hope, um, and vows that are basically a, Lord, if you do this, I'll do this, which I think is why it's so rare. Um, that's a, what an uncomfortable thing. Um, now, I want to be clear, like the study content is that we are under no obligation, no requirement to make a vow like this, that that I needed as I, as I read this text. Um, but if we do, it's super serious because God is not someone to play games with. Um, but the example used in the commentary for the lesson was of Hannah, a worshiper who was unable to have children. And so she went to the tabernacle and vowed to God that if he gave her a son, she would give him to the Lord all the days of his life. So, you know, the, I, I, a vow should come, a vow like this should come from a place of reverence. I think the tone of the text tells us that the vow should be significant. Um, I, the most recent example I heard of this was from my great uncle. And that this was, I couldn't believe how this just a couple of months ago, I was at his 97th birthday and I heard him talk about making a vow to God, which again is not something I hear often. So he and my grandpa and their two brothers, all four of them fought in world war II. And when my uncle was on his way home after, I mean, he just said it was hell. I mean, that's the language he used. Uh, off coming home from the front, his, he's like guarding a retreat road on their way to get back home. And he's just, he can taste getting back home at the end. This is at the end of the war. I think he's in Italy. And a bullet like dings by his helmet while he's like, I mean, he's just waiting to get on the boat essentially. And he said that he vowed to the Lord in that moment that if God would get him home, that he would serve him for the rest of his life. And I don't know what it is about that moment that made it, it, it having seen the fruit of it over my lifetime, it feels like the right kind of vow because that, that he's 97. He still leads people to Jesus. That guy shares Christ. He was a pastor for, I don't know, 50 years. Um, he's one, he, he's one of the most people I know that most can't shut up about Jesus. So that's an example that came to mind, but vows, vows like this sh should be rare. And I just wanted to finish, finish my th thoughts on this by reading the last paragraph from the commentary, um, that I thought was really helpful. Um, reverence for God will cause us to draw near and listen. And you've already touched on that mm -hmm. reverence to God will cause us to draw near and listen rather than to run our mouths like fools. Reverence for God will cause us not to delay in keeping our word. 
wise believers carefully weigh the promises they make to God and others, knowing they will be expected to keep any promises made. It's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, I think, done rightly, but it's such a serious thing that it, it, you have to have the reverence if you're going to come to it. Well, it's a part about making a vow that is wise. Yeah. Um, what, uh, you know, you mentioned the book having a comment uh, in the personal study guide in the comments on Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5, and it's also on day 4 in the Daily Discipleship Guide, there's this statement, and the statement is, God does not require us to make a vow. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I could see a way of us teaching this would be calling attention to that statement, God does not require us to make a vow, and then ask the class to, to respond to that statement. Pros and cons, do you agree, disagree? Uh, what if you said God never requires us? What if you added some adjectives into the this, this, this statement uh, to give them some more thought, uh, some more food for thought in making that in, that in that debate? Then after they've discussed it a little bit, point to the section right above it, the verse, the, the sentences right above it. Uh, it. It highlights Deuteronomy 23, where we're told in that particular passage, it's verses 21 through 23, if we promise something to God, uh, it's to be, it, we do it in this sense, we make this promise, we offer this to God with the idea that he will then act on our behalf, if, yeah. which is similar to what you're saying your grandfather had done. Yeah. And Hannah is an example from scripture of that being right. done with wisdom, and so is the same with your grandfather. But we do have some examples of scripture where it's been done <laughs> poorly. And the one that comes <laughs> to my mind right offhand is Jephthah in Judges 11. He's a judge uh, the Ammonites are harassing the Israelites, and they approach Jephthah to come and defeat the Ammonites. And he makes this vow that if God would give him victory over the Ammonites, when he returns, whatever comes out of his tent's door, he will offer that as a sacrifice. So he goes, God gives him victory, and he returns. And when he returns, the first thing that comes out of the door towards him, he's probably expecting to be a goat or some one of the animals. But it happens to be his daughter, and it's his only daughter, and it's his Goodness only gracious. child. He doesn't have any sons or anything. And so it, it says he is heartbroken because he realizes that he had made a foolish vow. Yeah. Now, that would have been made before Solomon penned these words in Ecclesiastes, because that would have happened in Judges, and Solomon's life is well past the time of the Judges. So I, there's a part of me that thinks that when he's making these comments about when you make a vow, be wise in it and make sure it's something you can keep. Don't be like Jephthah. Don't be like Jephthah. I got three little girls. I won't be making that vow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got one daughter and a son. I wouldn't want to be one of them. But, but that statement in our personal study guide and a daily discipleship guide gives us a way to start that conversation sure. about this particular text and then move into the conversation about Deuteronomy 23, and then about Hannah, Jephthah, others we know who made wise vows and have kept those, and the value of keeping those kind of vows. Any other things, Brandon, that you see in this passage that you would want us to think about or bring out for this Sunday? Nothing from the text. I would just say the resource was most encouraging to me this time. Um, I, th I think I told you before we started recording, I would not have felt confident, I don't think, teaching that third point without without the the commentary that without the leader resource it was really uh helpful to me and so it's not it's not a part of what we do in our yeah. in our culture yes the basics like they yeah do. it just it just reminded me of the the value of of 
tools like what we're talking about um, in a pretty fresh way because I, imme I immediately read that text and I thought, oh my goodness, that's a bit of a struggle. And uh, so, you know, having having help readily available was was just encouraged me in our work and and for the work of the the disciple disciple leaders that we're talking with. So, good. Hey, I want to thank you out there for listening to us today. If you have comments or questions, you're welcome to send me an email at dwayne.mccurry at lifeway.com. That's D-W-A-Y-N-E dot M-C-C. R-A-R-Y at lifeway.com. And I'll do my best to answer your questions. If I don't know the answer, I'll put you in contact with a person who can answer it. And that's my promise to you. Brandon, thank you for being with us this week. Next week, we're going to be looking at session 11. Darren Clark will be joining us again. We'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 11 through 12.